0: Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, Appreciate Sam preaching God's Word to us last Sunday. If you were here with us or you listened online, uh, you heard uh, that he preached on why Jesus was born to die, specifically because our, our sin is really that bad. Some theologians call it the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Uh, He showed us that from Ephesians chapter 2. But if you're interested in a more recent example of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, I would invite you to consider the Christmas season in the Butoh household growing up in my family. Uh, Now, remember, most of you know this, I am one of 12 children... And in case you're tempted to think, oh, how magical it must have been to have 12 children around the Christmas tree on Christmas morning, let me assure you, it's not as magical as you might think. Uh, Let me remind you of something that if you ever heard me officiate a wedding, you've heard me say before, one sinner plus one sinner does not equal less sin. Okay, that math applies to a dozen kids around the Christmas tree too. There was a lot of sin around the Christmas tree on Christmas morning in the Butoh household. Uh, It was really special. Christmas was a big day for us. It was a really important day for us. But that meant there was all the more ways that it could be ruined. So, for example, you could ruin Christmas in our house growing up uh, by peeking at your presents before Christmas. I remember my mom going to great lengths to have codes and all sorts of things to try to keep us from figuring out whose presents were whose. You could sin by telling somebody what you bought them before Christmas. That was a big no-no in my house. Uh, You could sin by waking up too early on Christmas morning. My parents had a tradition of sneaking into our bedrooms before they went to bed late at night on Christmas night and uh, putting the stockings on the bed in there. uh, And uh, there were more than one occasion where I would pretend I was asleep, and as soon as they left, wake up and open my stocking and stay up all night and try to get everybody up super early to open presents. That was a big no-no. You don't do that. You also could sin by sleeping in too late. You wouldn't want to be the one of 12 kids who's in bed when everybody else is ready to open presents on Christmas morning. You could sin by not communicating what we bought for mom, and she ends up getting 12-scented candles for Christmas presents. That was a big no-no. Don't do that again. Uh, You could sin by not smiling for the Christmas picture after the presents were done. You could sin by spitting in the party mix. True story. So that way you could be the only person that got to have party mix on Christmas. There's all sorts of ways to ruin Christmas in the Bhutto household. But here's the cardinal sin. If you wanted to be a for sure absolute Christmas ruiner growing up, don't like the present that someone got for you. Be ungrateful for a present that you received, and you would officially ruin Christmas. Now, this was all the more true if someone had spent maybe weeks or months planning the present. If if someone put a lot of effort, a lot of time, maybe even instead of wrapping it in a towel, maybe someone actually used real wrapping paper. And if you're ungrateful for a present like that, you could ruin Christmas. And most of us know there's lots of reasons why you might not like a present. Maybe it's too complicated. You know, like the table saw my dad got for Christmas one year that stayed on a shelf in the garage for about five years until we finally gave it away to Goodwill or something. Or maybe the present's just too uncomfortable. Think Ralphie's bunny pajamas in a Christmas story. Or maybe you just don't like it. What have I told you that we, too, have received a gift from our Heavenly Father that many of us are tempted to disregard? A gift that some would say is too complicated. Too uncomfortable. A gift that some might say, I just don't like that. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 three. This letter to the, the Christian churches in Ephesus was written about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's written by Paul the Apostle, and he's writing from prison. And as best as we can tell, there's no major conflict or issues in the Ephesian church. So, he's not really writing to respond to, like he does in a number of his other letters, to some issue. He's really writing to kind of introduce them to himself and to his theology. And so, if you're the Apostle Paul and you want to introduce people to your theology, where would you start? Or for Paul, where he begins this letter, he he begins by a crucial doctrine to understanding why Jesus was born to die. Paul begins with what theologians call the doctrine of election. Now, we're not talking about what many Americans do on the first Tuesday of November, we're talking about something that God did in eternity past. The Christian doctrine of election is really simply that that God chooses whom He will save. This is a doctrine, this is a teaching in the Scriptures that for some is like a Christmas present that you open up that you don't want. I've seen pastors fired for teaching these truths. Churches split in half for these truths. Christians walk out of services or meetings where this was taught. This is a truth. This is a gift that, if we're honest, is difficult, complicated, uncomfortable, and maybe we just don't really like all that much. And yet... It's a gift from our Heavenly Father. Last week, we began our Christmas series by considering why the atonement was necessary. This morning, with God's help, I want you to see how the atonement was planned. Look with me again at our text, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ,' to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Here's the big idea I hope to communicate to you this morning with God's help from the pages of Scripture that we just read. God chooses to save some by His grace for our good and for His glory. God chooses to save some By His grace, for our good, and for His glory. Just walk through that sentence together. God chooses to save some. I remember probably 25 years ago, maybe longer, watching some movie. I don't remember the name of the movie. Watching some movie with my parents. And um, my mom did this thing, and whenever we watched a movie together, whenever there was something that she found inappropriate, she'd kind of go like that, click her tongue. And she kind of did that tongue click, and my mom could do it so loud you could hear it above the singing in here this morning. And we're watching this movie, and sometimes it would be because of profanity or something like that in the movie, and she'd do that big, loud tongue click, but this was something different. I remember watching this movie, it had something to do with Native Americans or something like that, and at the end of this movie, there's this couple, and you can tell they're starting to like each other, and he likes her, she likes him. But at the conclusion of the movie, the gal says to the guy, I choose you, will you marry me? My mom did a big, loud tongue click. My mom just couldn't handle the idea that the lady would propose to the guy. That's just not the way that it's supposed to go. And young men in the room, the few of you here, when you get to the point where you are ready to seek a lady, you should be the one that does the proposing. Okay? Dads, I hope you'll back me up on that one. My mom just couldn't handle the idea that She would choose Him. The doctrine of election is all about choosing. Perhaps you have grown up with the idea that we choose God, that you chose God. And to even think about God choosing you or anybody else seems off. Perhaps you want to click your tongue right now. Look at the text, and remember, what matters is not what you feel, but what the Scripture says. Look at verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in him. Now, if we keep reading this section in Ephesians chapter 1, you're going to see a huge litany of blessings that you receive from God. Christian, you are overflowing with blessings that you have received from God. But Paul begins with the doctrine of election, even as He chose us in Him. Notice who it is who does the choosing. It is not you, dear friend. It is not us. It's God. This is the consistent teaching of the whole Bible. Think of Abraham. He was not looking for God. In Genesis chapter 12, he was a pagan worshiper of false idols, and God spoke to Abraham. Think of Isaac, of Jacob, chosen by God. Think of the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says to His people, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. He continues later in the section, and He says, I I chose you because I chose you. I love you because I love you. The nation of Israel did not choose God, but God chose them. Jesus chose His disciples. He makes this explicit in John 15. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And the Scriptures are clear that God chooses all His people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Do you see it, dear brother or sister? You belong to God because God chose that you would. Maybe your response is, well, I remember choosing. I decided to follow Jesus. Well, that's true. You did. Let's not become so enamored with the doctrine of election that we deny what the Bible clearly teaches about what it means to become a Christian. You did become a Christian after deciding to follow Jesus. You really did repent and believe, dear Christian. But who chose first? And whose choosing was decisive The doctrine of election in Scripture does not deny your choice to repent and believe, dear Christian, but it says that God chose before you did, and God's choice is decisive while yours is not. Let's see if I can put it this way. Imagine that Holly and I want to take the kids out to eat, and we've decided we want burgers. And we've decided that we want to go to Red Robin. And so we, we're going to go to Red Robin, but we want to give the kids a choice. And so we say to our children, listen, kids, you got two options. We can go to Red Robin. They've got TVs in there, you know. You can look at the TV while we eat. And they've got those fun little screens. You can sit down and play a game while you eat dinner. And they've got the big, juicy burgers and unlimited fries. Remember the unlimited fries? And there's, there's unlimited mandarin oranges, if you want oranges for your side. And, man, there's that special salt you can pour on your fries. It's so good. I know you guys want lunch now. That's okay. So you, you, we can go to Red Robin. It's great. We can get burgers. It's going to be phenomenal. Or we can go to Hardee's. Now... No offense to anybody that loves Hardee's or works at Hardee's or you got stock options in Hardee's. Hardee's is fine, but you see, we kind of stacked the deck, right? Now, the children are going to choose Red Robin. I mean, our kids have never been to Hardee's in their life. They're going to choose Red Robin, but whose choice was prior to their choice? Ours was. Whose choice was decisive? Ours was so too, it's an imperfect illustration, but so too with God, dear Christian. You really chose, you really repented, you really believed when you became a Christian, and yet God's choice was decisive. God's choice was prior to your choice. You chose because He chose you. How did you get the repentance and faith in the first place? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 makes it clear that faith is a gift. How could you believe in God unless He first gave you the faith to believe? If you go to verse 3 again, the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Wouldn't every spiritual blessing include the ability to repent and believe? One theologian put it this way, you take the first step, God will take the second step, and by the time you get to the third step, you will know that it was God who took the first step. So, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what I would plead for you to do. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins including the sin of not liking what the Bible teaches about this doctrine, if that be one of your sins, and trust in Jesus. The same thing that I would say to any sinner, turn and trust. And if you will do that, it is only because God has first given you the ability to do so. God chooses to save some by His grace. By His grace. I remember years ago on Sunday afternoons after church, a little church in rural Ohio, the kids would gather in the baseball field and we would play kickball and it'd be a big group of kids all gathered together and we'd all get up in a line and you know maybe you remember doing this kids maybe you, some of you guys still do this now you you have two captains right and the captains choose who's going to be on their team and and i remember watching as kid after kid after kid would get chosen in front of me why because they wanted the kids that were tall that were strong, that were fast, that were athletic, and they were saving the best for last. No, they knew that that wasn't me. I I figured out eventually that what I had to do was become the captain, and then I can be the one that does the choosing, and I'm going to be on a good team. Now, you chose, when you played games like that as a kid, or when you play them now, you choose on who is going to help your team win, right? That's why we choose. This is is how the NFL draft works. If if you're an NFL guy, we choose who's going to help us get to the postseason. That's the basis on which we choose. Why does God choose? What's the basis on which God chooses some? The answer is by His grace. Look at verse 4 again. "'Even as He chose us in Him,' Before the foundation of the world. By saying that God chose us before the foundation of the world, Paul is saying, you were chosen before you did anything. That's his point. Before the foundation of the world, before God said, let there be light, he chose to save some including, dear Christians, every one of you, before you had done anything. It is astonishing that some people will, in in trying to understand the doctrine of election, will twist it backwards and say, well, God looks in the future and He foreknows, and He knows that these people are going to choose Him, and so He chooses them first. That's the exact opposite of what he's saying here. We are chosen before the foundation of the world because before then, we haven't done anything to deserve any choosing. Paul makes this explicitly clear in Romans chapter 9. Uh, by the way, I would encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus that struggles with this doctrine, spend some time in Romans 8 through 11. Just, just let that marinate, study those chapters. But in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, Paul talks about the story of Rebekah having two twin boys. You remember Esau and Jacob. Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger." Paul looks back to the story of Jacob and Esau, and he says, here is evidence of God's electing grace. He chooses some, not on the basis of what they might eventually do, but solely on the basis of grace. We were telling our kids this story recently, and the kids brought up a good point If God was going to choose on the basis of what they would eventually do, you would think that He would choose Esau anyways, right? After all, Jacob was a liar, a trickster. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a bad guy in a lot of ways. And yet, God chose Jacob, why? Because of grace. Dear Christian God chose you not because he looked in the court down the corridors of time and saw that you would be a pretty good recruit for his team he chose you because he chose you he chose you because of grace i would suggest to you christian if you're tempted to believe that God chooses because He knows that we'll eventually choose Him, that will eventually lead to pride or despair. That's what happens when we root these things in anything but grace. Pride, man, I'm so glad that I chose God. Or despair, what if I didn't really choose Him right? What if I didn't do it well enough? What if I didn't really repent all the way? What if I didn't really have just enough faith? But the the, the point is that with either extreme, you're looking at you. And God says, when you want to understand the doctrine of election, don't look at you, look at me. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That's incredible, amazing grace you were not chosen because you would eventually believe christian you eventually believed because you were chosen there's a couple of applications to this point christian first i would praise i would encourage you to praise god for your faith your ability To believe in God was itself a gift. Praise Him for it. I would encourage you as well to tell others the good news. Listen, if God could give faith to you, dear Christian, then He can give faith to others as well. And I would also challenge you to love others the way that you have been loved. Don't love because of the good that someone else will do for you. Don't love because, you know, maybe if I do this for her, she'll do this for me. Love unconditionally. Isn't that the way that God has elected His people? Without conditions, unconditionally, not looking for some benefit to Himself, but simply out of sheer grace. God chooses some by His grace for our good, for our good. There's a popular saying that God is a gentleman. He doesn't go where He isn't invited, and He doesn't force Himself on anyone. And this is used sometimes to refute the doctrine of election. Well, God wouldn't do that. He's a gentleman. He wouldn't force himself on anybody. Well, let me ask you a question. Would you say that about a fireman? A fireman outside of a burning building, would you want that fireman to be a gentleman, wait till he's invited in? Would you want him to wait until he's called upon to come inside and rescue someone from the flames? Or would you want him to take that ax and break down the door? Listen, the the seriousness of our need is much greater than a burning building. We are, apart from Christ, destined for hell. What we need in our hour of need is not a gentleman who waits to be called upon. If God were to wait until we call upon Him, guess what? None of us would call upon Him. Romans chapter 3 says, there are none who seek after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. If you want a gentleman God, you will not find Him in the pages of Scripture. You will instead find a God who is not safe but is good. The text lists, lists two reasons why it is for our good That we are chosen. Because we're chosen, we can become who we were meant to be. Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Dear brother, sister, friend, you were made for holiness. I was made for holiness. And yet, if you listen to the sermon Sam preached last week, that's not how we live, is it? We are sinful. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sin, like a drop of poison in a bottle of water, has corrupted our entire person. But now, because of this gift of election, you can become who you are meant to be. Notice what the text says, that you're going to be presented not in front of your peers, not in front of a lost and sinful world, but in front of God as holy and blameless. And He's going to look at you, and He's going to say, I approve. How can that be possible? Because of this gift of election. Because God has chosen you for holiness, Christian. Is He's going to, in your life, chisel away at your sin and selfishness and imperfection until the day comes when Christ returns and you are glorified and you are presented holy and blameless before the Father. You and I can become who we were meant to be. One common objection that people sometimes have to election is, is that if God chooses us solely on the basis of grace, then it doesn't matter how I live. That's so clearly not what's taught in the pages of Scripture. We are chosen so that we will pursue holiness. There is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. And we are given the the seeds of that holiness in the moment we repent and believe and God intends to cause it to grow and flourish. So in election, it's good for us because we become who we were meant to be. By the way, the remedy for sinning, struggling Christians is not first and foremost a lecture or a new rule. The remedy for us is is a reminder of grace. You're struggling to be holy. What you need more than anything is not a new rule or a new habit or a new discipline, but a new and fresh glimpse of the glorious grace of God. The second reason why it's good that we've been chosen is because now we can become children of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Second half of verse 4, in love, on to verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. All of us were made for relationship with God. That's what we're made for. Adam and Eve in the garden had a perfect relationship with God. We're made for relationship with him. Because of sin, that relationship has been severed. Linda prayed about this morning. There's a a rift. There's not peace in our relationship with God, but because of election, we are adopted into the family of God. We're brought into the family. And some oppose election because they say, well, if God can save anybody, He should save everybody. I wonder if you hold yourself and others to that standard. There are, as of last week, 150 million orphans in the world. 150 million orphans in the world. I wonder how many you could welcome into your home. A lot of us would probably say, well, I can't can't welcome any. Is that really true, though? Could we really not welcome any? Would it be impossible for us to welcome an orphan into our home? Given how much we have in this country, how many spare bedrooms we have, the extra beds we have, compared to some of the living conditions across the world, whether we're willing to admit it or not, the truth is nearly everyone in this room, if we're honest, could provide for several and still have some left over to share. Perhaps some of us can do more than we're doing. Perhaps some of us should. That's really not the point. The point is that you don't rebuke a family for welcoming one child into their home through adoption. Hey, weren't there more orphans in that country when you went over there to Columbia? You only brought one home? We don't do that. Why? We praise God. This is a good thing. You you welcomed someone into your home through adoption. You cared for an orphan. That's good. Is God less free than we are? Does God not have the freedom in His Godness, in His glory, in His majesty to say, I will save some? Or must we mandate that He do things that even we ourselves don't do? God is free. To elect as He wills. And by the way, Christian, God is not a stingy, adoptive Father. Listen to Revelation chapter 7. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God is a merciful, gracious, lavishly adoptive Heavenly Father that invites people from every language, every tongue, every color, every status all over the world. He's inviting them to Himself. He is a glorious God. He chooses to save some by His grace for our good and for His glory. You know, there's something more sinister, I think, than disregarding the doctrine of election. Something more sinister than saying, I don't want that present. Using your belief and your doc in this doctrine as an opportunity for pride, that's even more sinister. I know in this room there are some who struggle with this doctrine. This is hard for you. I I sympathize with you, dear Christian. There are others in this room, you got this, you're good. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and maybe, just maybe, you're proud of how well you get it. If understanding this doctrine leads you to personal pride, you don't understand this doctrine. This glorious doctrine ought to take your boasting off of yourself and say, only God gets the glory. And that's exactly what Paul says in our text. Look at middle of verse 5. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of what? His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Why did God choose some by His grace for our good and for His glory? Because He wanted to. Why did He choose you, Christian? Not because you were great, but because He is great. I wonder if you're in this room and you feel weak, foolish, low, downcast, despised. Can I just encourage you to take heart? That's exactly the kind of people that God loves to choose. He did not choose you because of something good in you. He chose you because of all the goodness and all the glory and all the majesty in Him. So take your eyes off, you weary, struggling Christian, and look to God and say, thank you for choosing me. And if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you cannot possibly be too low for God to choose you. It's impossible. God delights in choosing the low. And to the Christian in this room who wonders, well, am I really am I really chosen, I've messed it up too bad. if you did not choose yourself, then you can't be unchosen yourself either. God chooses to save some by His grace, for our good and for His glory. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Did you notice the words that Jesus used? This is my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was born to die for a particular people, for His chosen ones, for you, dear Christian. So how do I know if I've been chosen by God? Have you repented of your sins? Do you believe in the gospel? If yes, you could only have done that because God gave you the ability to do it. So praise Him. If the answer to that question is no, then do that now and belong to Him today. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song based on this text, and while we're singing, I'm going to ask parents, if you would, to please pick up your kiddos from PBC Kids so after we sing, we can take communion together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll stand and sing.